We are in Acts chapter 12, so I hope you will turn there with me. In the Blue Pew Bible, it's page 1090, Acts chapter 12. In this story, you're going to see just how human we are and how amazing and great God is. Two things that we need to remember. Just how human we are, (laughs) that we are weak, we need God, we need his help, we do depend on him, as that song, the chorus in that song said, we depend on him, we've got to have him, and just how great he is, how powerful he is. Last week, in chapter 11, we were looking at, we were in, actually, the Gentile city of Antioch. That was where Luke was focused when he was writing here for us. And now in chapter 12, we switch back to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is struggling. It's discouraged. It's having a hard time. Um, Because if you remember, chapter 11 ended with this announcement that there was going to be a great famine and that they were going to be struggling to even get enough food to eat. And so the church in Antioch, took up an offering and sent it to Jerusalem so that they would have enough money to feed themselves and to feed those around them that they were caring for. So this was during that great famine. This is interesting because what we see here is a king, King Herod, who is king over this area where Jerusalem is. And this king is probably suffering in the popularity Uh, department. His numbers are down as far as how successful his people think he is because there is a famine. So when inflation hits or when the stock market tanks or whatever, who gets blamed? You know, commander in chief, right? The guy at the top, he gets blamed. Well, it's the same situation back then in Jerusalem. King Herod had discovered that his popularity was waning. And so he found a way an ingenious way, an evil way, actually, to increase his popularity among the Jews if he persecuted the Christians. The Jews are still angry at the Christians. They don't like what Christ had come to say to them about their walk with God and how distant they really were from God because they thought they were God's people. And and Jesus came to say, you're only God's people if you follow God, if you do what he tells you to do, if you have the heart that I will display to you. And so Jesus was not popular. That's why they crucified him. Jesus' followers now are, are still not popular among the Jewish people. So Herod had already arrested James, the apostle James, and had him beheaded. We know this from the beginning of the chapter. It says in chapter 12, it was about this time, this time of the famine, that King Herod arrested some of those who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, or beheaded, as uh, we, we know from history. So... King Herod, who was needing to keep the Jewish people on his side, had decided if he persecuted this small group of Christians here, he would uh, gain popularity. He would keep his power, right? Because a king always wants to stay in power. Now, we see James is mentioned here in verse 2, but James, another James is mentioned in verse 17 of the same chapter. 
But the James here in verse 2 is actually identified for us as the brother of John. Now, John is the disciple, the apostle who wrote the gospel of John. Therefore, this James was one of the original 12 disciples because James and John came to Jesus to follow Jesus early on in Matthew chapter 4 when he invited them to follow him. They were brothers who were fishermen who laid laid down their nets and followed him. Killing this apostle of the church had made King Herod popular, had given him a little bit of power among the leaders, especially in Israel. So he decided to go after another Christian leader, this time Peter. Peter was arrested and put in prison. And interestingly, Herod had heard that Peter had been in prison once before with some of the apostles and that they had escaped This was what we read back a few months ago when we were studying Acts chapter 5. So this king, King Herod, took no chances. And Luke here tells a story, which we'll read here in just a moment, preparing us for this great miracle by telling us the intent of this king, that this king was an evil king, this king was going to continue to persecute the church and kill its leaders. So let's read several of these verses together so we can understand the context of what God wants us to learn this morning. So we started in verse 1. We already read it, but it said it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter, Simon Peter, also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So during the feast time, they can't execute. So they had to just put him into prison to wait till the feast was over. And then they could go forward with the execution. Verse 4, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Four squads. So four times four equals what? Sixteen. Sixteen soldiers for this one little Christian guy. Right? So Herod, Herod wanted to use his power to, to really try to make sure that this thing went right, that he would follow through with this. After arresting him, he put him in prison. He put the four squads of four soldiers each around him. And Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. This is verse 5. But the church was earnestly Praying to God for him. So these these guards were guarding him. In fact, we know enough about this this type of uh, arrest and this type of imprisonment that we know that with a with a squad of four, there's four soldiers. Um, Peter would be chained, one hand to one soldier, one hand to the other soldier. Two soldiers would be at the door to keep him from leaving. Right? So that's how the four were used. And they rotated every three or four hours. They would rotate through. So they'd take off the cuffs and they'd put them in. So it would be impossible. And Luke wants us to know how impossible it would be for him to escape. I mean, this would be impossible for even Houdini, right? To be able to get out of both cuffs and through that door. And outside the door, there's another eight people. 
9, 10, 11, 12. No, there's, there's even more. There's, there's, there's 12 more people because there's 16 altogether, right? So outside there, there's a, another a, a area. And we'll see that as he escapes, you see he has to walk through this sort of obstacle course of guards to get out of this imprisonment. So here's the thing. All of this is brought up to tell us that there was nothing that the church could do except pray. Let me say that again. We'll put it on the slide. There was nothing that the church could do to get Peter out of this bad situation. What does it say? Except pray. This is the key phrase that we want to remember as we go through this lesson this morning. You know, we just saw this play out on a national level with the National Football League. A couple weeks ago, one of their guys went down, right? Went down on the field. We have a picture of it. And what, did, what happened? The rest of the team went down on their knees. This is a football team, not even the church. Now, maybe they're members of churches. Maybe not, but they knew this was such a serious situation. The guy's heart had stopped. He was dead, biologically dead, right? So they went to their knees. There was nothing else they could do. Now, yes, we know EMTs came and da 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 but, but at that moment, they were driven to prayer. On national, maybe international television. We praise God for that because it brings something up for us. Are we that connected that we would, in any situation, any difficult situation, go to our knees in prayer, knowing that there's nothing we can do except pray? The Christians here knew what Herod intended to do. They just saw what he did. He just cut off James's head. He intended to do the same to Peter. How could they face the future without their beloved Peter? Peter, Peter now who is considered, you know, the, the leader in the church, right? He's the head guy. Peter's the one who walked on water. Peter's the one that denied Christ but was restored by Christ himself. They're following Peter. Peter had already done miracles, had gone on little missionary journeys around that area and, and raised someone from the dead, and he had he'd made a crippled man walk again, blind man to see. How could they go on without Peter? So they prayed to God. They didn't start a riot in the streets. They didn't burn down the shops and smash the windows. They didn't even protest outside of Herod's house. They gathered together and they prayed. They did what Christians should do when troubled times come. Don't believe what the world says. Oh, you need to make signs. You need to march up and down the street. You need to throw rocks at the police. And you need to do whatever. No. That is not the way that the Bible tells us to act. It said the only thing that they could do was pray. And so they prayed. But notice this verse. This verse. Go back to the verse there. In this verse, it says, they didn't just pray. It says they earnestly prayed. 
We don't have a record of the words that they prayed. Now, all throughout Scripture, we have written prayers. We have prayers from the Old Testament and prayers even in the New Testament. This prayer wasn't written down. Ooh. So now we got to figure out what does it mean to earnestly pray to God for someone or some situation that you know is impossible except for God. Now, one version says that they constantly prayed. So again, the, 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 the translation from the Greek to the English, sometimes they choose different words, but, but here they choose earnestly in the NIV. Your version might say constantly prayed. Either way, we learn something from it, don't we? I say it's unfortunate that we don't have this prayer recorded for us word for word. I say this because one of the great problems that we all face when we come to a terrible time in our life or a terrible situation with a loved one is knowing how to pray. If only they had written down what they were praying, then we would know how to pray. It would be like a formula. Something bad happens, say these magic words. Something bad happens, say these magic words. But prayer is not magic words. That's why it's not recorded for us. Because I would be weak and I would say, oh, i got to say it exactly like this. What did they say? Maybe I'd even learn Greek and I'd say it in the Greek. But I would say it that way because I would think, that must be the magic words. Maybe they didn't pray those magic words when James was arrested. But now they, now they prayed them when Peter was arrested. No, no, no. That's not what's happening here. And God knows our weakness, and so he doesn't allow us to just copy someone else's little prayer. Because prayer is about a relationship. Prayer isn't just about the words that you say and how you say them. It's about your relationship with God and your desperation for God. Many of our songs this morning are about how much we need God. Bowing our knee before him and saying, God, there's nothing else we can do. We need you to do something here for us. When a person that we love is in trouble, it's hard to know what to pray. What is best? Well, we can learn from this situation. If Peter was our personal friend, let's pretend. Let's play pretend here in church. Pretend he's like your good friend, your best friend. He also is a brother in Christ. You know that he loves God, and, and together you're learning to love God better. He's a leader in your church. How would you pray? Well, the one thing that we notice is that in this case, they didn't stay home to pray. How do we know that? Because if you continue to read, and we'll just skip down a little bit. We'll go back to it in a moment, to the, the actual miracle that happens. But in verse 12, when, when, Peter, when it dawned on Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark where many people had gathered and were praying. Many people had gathered and were praying. They didn't stay away and just pray alone. I'm sure they did pray when they had to go to work or when they had to go home and take care of the kids or whatever. But they didn't stay in isolation because sometimes things are so bad you can't handle it alone. You need someone there even just to be present with you in that trouble. To provide the comfort that another human being can provide. Now, praying alone is, 
important, very important. But we're talking about the church here, and, and the book of Acts is about the birth of the church and how the Holy Spirit comes to inspire the church and empower the church for ministry. And so we're going to focus on church prayer. I don't think we're doing it quite right. In church prayer, the way Holden Chapel does it, someone comes up to the mic and says, oh, let's all bow our heads and pray. And then they pray. One person prays, and everyone else is, by bowing their heads, in agreement. That's not what was going on here. They came together as a group to support one another and to pray together. We don't have the words. We don't have even the way they did it. But what we do know is that they were together. They were not alone. They gathered to pray. Now, when I gathered to pray with other people, it's very encouraging to me. Because I pray alone quite often. But when I pray with someone else, especially when I'm struggling, sometimes I'm just, we have a 7, 7.15, I was going to say 7 o'clock, a 7.15 in the morning prayer time on Tuesdays. Sometimes I'm dragging a little bit at 7.15. Some of you are still in your beds. Others of you are already on your way to work, right? But I'm, I, I, I don't really, like, feel the energy to pray. But when I gather with other people, even just a few other people, because it's just a few of us, I'm somehow changed by that presence of those people. And I listen to someone else pray, and my mind is transported into their prayer. And then my mind begins to pray in agreement and sometimes something else we haven't prayed about yet. And so there's like a, an energy that's released when being with someone else in prayer that I don't get when I'm alone in prayer. Even though both are prayer. One isn't wrong, one isn't right. But in this situation, we're learning about what it means to come together in prayer. And we have this word. Other than knowing that they came together, all we have in verse 5 is this one word. And the word is earnest or earnestly. Right? Now, earnest means to do something, to be intent about it. So it doesn't just happen by accident. To be direct about it. To do it on purpose. That's what earnest actually means. To do something on purpose. To be zealous about it. To be fervent about it. To be heartfelt. In other words, you're not just, not even thinking. You know, do you ever like talk and you're thinking about something else at the same time? It's actually very dangerous. But sometimes I do it even with my spouse, with my wife. Oh. I like answer like sure honey yeah sure honey like like do you do you want pancakes for supper sure whatever whatever and then I sit down and go why are we having pancakes and she's like you said it was okay I'm like I did you know because my mind was somewhere else right that's not the kind of word that this is this is not like oh I came to pray and I was praying, our Father, Lord, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I wonder what's for supper. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where did I put my keys? Your will and our... You know. it, it's not like that. That's why we actually don't do prayers in a, in a patterned way. Because what happens is your mind begins to wander. If you know the words to the prayer too well, 
and you say them again and again and again. Same with, same with music. Same with a song that's put to, a prayer that's put to music. If you sing a song too many times, guess what? You can sing that song and sew a quilt at the same time because you, you can divide yourself into sort of like two different people, not really paying attention to that thing because you're paying attention to something else. That's not what earnest means. So they didn't just come to prayer like, oh, it's time for prayer. Let's just go. I got to put my grocery list together anyway. They came to prayer and they were intent. They were fervent. They were, they were devoted to it. They had deep feelings of conviction about what was going on. So earnest prayer is a sustained kind of prayer that's marked by deep conviction. You don't just pray it once and go away and forget what you prayed. You continue to seriously and earnestly, with deep feeling, pray. In other words, let's look at what the other James in this chapter says. Because there is another James. In verse 17, I just read to you about this other James. In verse 17, so this is after James has already been killed, so we can't be the first James... Peter motioned with his hand for them to quiet down and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison, which we'll look at in a moment. But he says, tell James and the brothers about this. So another James. So who is this other James? Well, this is important for us to know. Not the one who was beheaded, but there is another James. And he wrote a book called The Book of James. And in that book, he wrote a verse which says the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available. That's the amplified version. We can read it in the NIV if you really like. I know how you guys, you guys are sticklers, right? So in verse 5, verse 6, I mean in chapter 5 of James, verse 16, uh, it says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly, there's that word again, that it would not rain. And guess what? It did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed earnestly, I'm sure. And the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crop. So it's using an example from the Old Testament to teach us about this coming to God earnestly in prayer. Because earnest prayer produces results. So maybe we're not praying earnestly, people. I don't know. We need to ask God. You see, it's important. I think many of us have come to believe that earnest, needy, serious, intense prayer is an option that some people are good at and other people get to skip. But the Bible doesn't teach that. We're all called to earnest prayer, especially in times of trouble. That earnest, serious prayer isn't just for special people. That's not what the Bible teaches us. And our passage today says that earnest prayer is for all Christian people. So I'm sorry if you've misunderstood us. 
When we often offer to pray for you, like we use this little card that says, and I, and I say, most Sundays, I say, if you have a prayer need, please write it down on here and we will pray for you. Because I also think that that's biblical. But I'm sorry if you've misunderstood by thinking that if we're praying for you, you don't have to pray for you. Because guess what? That's not what that means. This means we will join you in praying earnestly for your needs. See the difference? I think we have a problem. Because I think we think that prayer is somebody else's job. And if I just write a brief memo, they'll do it for me. Holy cow. Open your eyes, people. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says. Prayer is for all of us. Our Lord doesn't make prayer optional for the disciples. In fact, when he's teaching them about prayer in Matthew 6, he says, and when you pray, and he goes on to give some instructions about that. He talks about praying in private, not on a street corner so everybody thinks you're awesome, right? So when you pray isn't like if you pray. That's different. So when do you pray? This is serious. Answer your question yourself, quietly. In your head. When do you pray? Can you answer that? I hope so. I hope so. You see, we see this practice of earnest prayer in Scripture again and again and again. In fact, the first time the word earnest prayer, those words, obviously it wasn't in English, but those words are put in Scripture is in Jonah Chapter 3, verse 8. You know the story of Jonah. Jonah got swallowed by a whale. But remember why he got swallowed? He wouldn't go to Nineveh and share the good news of repentance and forgiveness. And so this is in that story we find in a moment of desperation, the people of Nineveh are instructed and they're told, let everyone call urgently to God. He may forgive us. And we know the story. He does forgive them, right? There's a, there's a great revival in that city. Now, these are some evil people. These are some bad dudes. But they cry out to God earnestly, and God answers their prayer. Urgently is the same word for earnestly. Urgent, earnest, same root. In Acts chapter 12 and in Jonah chapter 3, these people are in dire straits because they realize they are completely helpless in their situation. There's nothing they can do except earnestly pray. My question for you Is that you today? Is there a situation in your life where you are desperate? There is nothing you can do but pray. No doctor can heal you. 
No counselor can fix you. No amount of money would make your problem go away. You know you. You know your situation. It might not be you personally, but it might be your family. It might be a loved one. It might be someone you work with. Where there's nothing you can do but pray. Where you're feeling helpless. Because what you need is earnest prayer. Serious, eager, intense prayer. It takes no special spiritual position or spiritual title to pray this way. You don't have to be a super holy person, sanctified in every way to pray this way. After all, if the Ninevites could do it and God answered their prayer, I'm pretty sure you might be a step up from a Ninevite. If you're in church today, you're probably not a Ninevite. But if you're close to a Ninevite, it doesn't matter. Even the, even the Ninevites were answered. God had mercy on them, and God stepped in. So you don't have to have a glowing halo or perfect life. You actually have to realize how desperate you really are. How weak you really are. How in need you really are. Because the more we sense our imperfections, the more we sense how unspiritual we are, the greater our need will be. And the more earnest our prayers will be. Jesus tells a story about two people who come into the temple. I don't remember if he observed them or if it's just a story he tells. And one is a righteous man. Comes in, thank you for my righteousness or whatever he says. I'm sorry I didn't look it up. It's just coming to my mind right now. And the other one comes in, oh God, oh God, forgive me. I don't deserve it, but I'm still going to ask you for it. And Jesus says to his disciples, which one do you think gets the answer to his prayer? The man who realized what need he was in. You see, so often we are trained to be independent. Do it yourself. Be strong. Buck up. When God is saying, I know you're weak. I know you need me. Just tell me you need me. Just tell me you need me. See, it's not about a declaration of independence. It's about a declaration of inability. Americans, because we have the declaration of independence, somehow think that that applies to our spiritual lives as well. No, it doesn't. It cannot. We are completely dependent on God. We are unable to do anything good, Scripture tells us, unless it comes from God. So we're dependent on God for everything. Every breath we take, every step we take, every time our eyes open up and we can see something. We're dependent on God. He makes this all work for us. Every single thing we bring to God is something in prayer that we're actually saying is outside of our power. Something we don't have the resources to take care of. The more we believe the answer to our prayer rests in God alone, 
the more we will believe that he will provide. It's not up to you and me, our strength, our ability, our wisdom. The more powerless we feel, the more serious and earnest our prayers will be. James is a smart dude, the second James, because we're going to look at his book one more time. Because in James chapter 4, verse 6, he quotes from the Proverbs, and the quote is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want to apply that to prayer. I think Jesus consistently teaches that way. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like those who stand on the street corner and puff out their chest and pray out loud so that everyone can see them. He says they've already received their reward. In other words, they're not going to get anything else from God. We are to be humble before God. We are to submit our lives before God. We are to surrender our will to God. And I hope that the reason that we only have a few people in our prayer meeting is not that we are full of pride. I hope you don't think you can handle your life on your own. I hope you know how dependent you truly are on God. We need to act in ways that confirm the fact that we are weak and everything that we need comes from our Heavenly Father. Everything we need. As Psalm 23 says, the shepherd, he provides it all. I won't go through that verse, that, that, that chapter, but in, in, if he's our shepherd, it says, we shall not want. We won't be in need. He provides everything that we need. So when the church prayed earnestly, God performed a three-part miracle. Let's just read it quickly together. Love it, love it, love it. All right. So, verse 5, back in Acts chapter 12, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for God, to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries that stood at the at, guard at the, at the entrance. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The chains fell off Peter's wrists. They didn't fall off the guard's wrists. They had one end of the handcuffs and, and the other end was just dangling. All right? Verse 8. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Now, Peter's seen visions before, so it makes sense, right? They passed the first and the second guards. Remember, there's 16 of them. And then they came to an iron gate leading to the city. It's amazing. The iron gate, which I'm sure was locked, just opened like, <laughs> before them. It says it opened for them by itself. 
They didn't have to push on it. They didn't have the key. They didn't have like the, the button. They, it just opened and they, they went through. And when they had walked the length of one street, so when they got far enough away, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself. Before that, he thought he was in a dream or in a trance. And he says to himself, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the, Jew, the Jewish people were anticipating. In other words, his death. His torture, whatever they were going to do to him. When this had dawned on him, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Many people. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came. <laughs> Rhoda reminds me of Lucille Ball. <laughs> a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without even opening the door. Wouldn't, wouldn't Lucille Ball do it? You, you got to be old to know Lucille Ball. But wouldn't she do that? You know, just like, whoa, and run away and forget to open the door. I love it. So Luke has a little sense of humor. God has a sense of humor. She runs into the group that's praying. She says, Peter's at the door. And they say, awesome. God is amazing. Praise Yahweh. Actually, no, they don't believe her. Verse 15, you are out of your mind. <laughs> Have you ever received an answer to prayer and you're telling someone about it and they're just like, yeah, ooh, <laughs> I'm sure that really happened, right? You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they finally said, okay, it must be his angel. Now, there was a belief at the time that you had a guardian angel we still might believe that. And once you died, your angel wasn't with you anymore. So they actually may have thought, oh, Peter's already gone. It must be Peter's angel. So <laughs> they think she's out of her mind, and then they're like, okay, maybe it's an angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished that God answered their prayers. So were they not expecting God to answer their prayers? It's interesting. I don't know. But they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet. So they must have been yelling and screaming and praising God. And then he says, go and tell. Yada, yada, yada. The rest of it. All right? So we have this amazing, somewhat funny, awesome miracle that takes place. Peter was good enough to keep knocking and not go away. God answers the prayers of his people when they were earnestly praying. Now, I need to say this sort of in, in parentheses. They may have earnestly been praying for James as well. But God's plan and God's will is beyond our understanding sometimes. James was an apostle of Jesus Christ, just as Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. If they prayed earnestly for James, which I'm assuming they did, God's will for James was to bring him home to be with Jesus. God's will for Peter was to continue on the mission that God had given Peter to give. We don't make that decision. In fact, Jesus in the garden modeled for us this struggle. 
that we have sometimes when we're in great trouble. And the only, only answer that we can see is the one that we want. We want our loved one to live and not die. We want the cancer to be gone. Right? So it's the only thing. If we pray that way earnestly, even if we're wrong, God will do what is right in his plan. He knows he is sovereign over all things. Jesus' good friend and cousin, John the Baptist, was also beheaded in prison. Jesus himself, which I'm sure he was communicating to the Father. I'm sure he didn't want John to lose his head. Right? Jesus, when he's in the garden, when his own death is looming and ready to, he's ready to give up his life for us, he says... But not my will. Like, like let, let this cup pass from me. But, but not my will. Let yours be done. And it was the will of God to bring the perfect Lamb of God to the cross for us. As painful as that was, the miracle that it brought about of new life and forgiveness of sins was worth it in God's plan. So we don't know the mind of Christ all the time. We don't understand God's ways. They're higher than ours. So sometimes our prayers don't get answered the way we want them to. But it still doesn't mean we give up praying. I think what has happened is that often when we don't get the answer the first time, we stop praying. If you were that group of people and you prayed for James, and he'd been killed. Maybe you didn't show up to the next prayer meeting because you were so disappointed in God or in yourself. I don't know. But something creeps in. It's called discouragement. And we get discouraged. We stop praying those big prayers. We stop praying those earnest prayers, those intense prayers. And we say, well, God, whatever happens, happens. That's not what the church was meant for. That's not what God called us to. He called us to earnestly pray to him, and whatever the answer is, we rejoice. We stand firm. We know that he's got a big plan that he's working out. So God, we pray that your word has done a work in us by your spirit this morning. We pray that as we take in even the words of this song, Lord, that you would continue to encourage us to learn how to pray earnestly with our whole hearts and to trust you for the answer. We know you're the God of miracles. Sometimes you do them and sometimes you don't in our perspective. But we trust in you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 